You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. New City, good morning. Oh my goodness. It is so good to see your faces again. I, uh, I was restless, couldn't sleep last night, was just excited to get up and be together again. The Lord has given us a great privilege in being together. I hope the last two weeks were good for you, got some time with family, I hope, or um, we're viewing online. We uh, The last two weeks have been good for us, they've been eventful. We uh, the Vulcanings with baby number two on the way officially joined team minivan. So y'all can pray for us. It is a sport. It is a sport model. So if you want to race after this, we can talk after the service. But um, anyway, friends, I am so grateful to open the Bible with you. We're going to be continuing in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter nine this morning is where we'll be. And once you turn to chapter nine, as you're able, will you stand in reverence for the reading of God's word this morning? We're going to read verses 1 through 7 together today. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden." And the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll do this. This is God's word. You can have a seat this morning. We are spending our first Christmas season as a church in the book of Isaiah for really one intentional reason. Isaiah is the source material for the New Testament. If Isaiah asked the question, Jesus, our Lord, supplied the answer. The people of God were wrestling through how in the world... Are we going to get saved from us? And the book of Isaiah is the beginning of God's response to that question. 
And what comes into fuzzy view in the book of Isaiah comes into crystal clarity in the person and work of Jesus, our king, born into this world. And so here we land in Isaiah chapter 9, getting a glimpse of this child born into the world who is going to change everything. For some reason, at Christmas time, I always want to pull out The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anybody else? It's a great book. Nell has read that book, I bet. Um, It's this amazing story from the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it just feels real Christmassy, right? There's a lot of snow going on, but there's this line in there that always kind of captures a little bit of what I feel around Christmas time. It kind of captures that same heartbeat of the hymn, I heard the bell on Christmas Day that we just sung. They say it's in Narnia, under the rule of an evil queen, it is always winter, but it's never what? It's never Christmas. Doesn't that feel a little bit like 2020, my friends? A year of always winter, never Christmas. You caught those words in the passage, gloom and anguish, right? Injustice. We've experienced some degree of all of those things over the last year together. And and all the while, I I don't want to discount, it's been lined with some joys too, right? It's forced us into a place where we have to actually look at what's going on inside of ourselves for a minute. So maybe this is a moment where the Lord is priming the pump for people to see and treasure Jesus in a way that they haven't in who knows how long. Friends, the incarnation meets us in that world, a world of gloom and anguish. Christ coming into this world is the assurance that a king and a baby king, isn't that poetic and beautiful that God did that? A baby king would come and win back the father's lost treasure. It's a guarantee. Mike Cosper talks about what happens in this miracle of God coming into the world. I love this language. He says, the disenchanted world, the one that's capacity to show people God's glory has been stained and marred. But guess what? That world has been re-enchanted by the coming king. Like when Jesus shows up and he begins to do miracles, you know what Jesus isn't doing? He's not actually interrupting the natural order. He's actually setting the natural order right. He is giving us a glimpse of the world that should be, the world that has been broken and stolen by sin. Isaiah chapter 9 shouts to us, what this world re-enchanted by our king looks like. Here's here's the main point today. If you're a note taker, this is it. It's real simple. God with us re-enchants the broken and rebellious world. Man, I hope that sounds like hope to you today where you are aware that this world is broken, that's exactly where Jesus steps in as big and as beautiful as he is. Let's see what this world re-enchanted looks like. Isaiah is going to show us. Will you look back at verse 1? It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought contempt 
um, into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Do you remember the last time you experienced anguish? It's a strong word, isn't it? It's serious pain. I experienced a little taste of anguish over the last two weeks. I was finishing putting up my Christmas lights, and I have an adjustable ladder that is only marginally smarter than I am. And uh, so I get off the roof, and I'm about to pull the pins on the ladder and adjust it back down. And while I thought I was actually holding the top of the ladder, I wasn't holding anything. And so I pulled these pins, and the ladder dropped about three vertical feet straight on my middle toe, right? And uh, the Lord kept any words coming out of my mouth that weren't honoring to him. But I, I went inside and I sat down in a chair and I was like, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it through this. And I found myself, especially as my wife's about to have a baby, I found myself going, okay, this feels like a 10, but I'm pr- like, I'm comparing it to childbirth in my head. And I'm looking at Aaron. I'm like, I finally get it. I finally get it, right? It's probably nothing compared to that. Anguish is this deep sense of pain that overwhelms our senses, and it causes us to go, if somebody doesn't show up and rescue me, I'm not going to make it. The people of God were in deep anguish in this moment we're looking in on. Friend, we experience anguish. Anguish is our reality, but Jesus coming into this world turns that reality on its head. What did he say? There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You see, the anguish of the people of God was a mess of their own making. I mean, God didn't sweep it under the, under the rug. Somebody had to be held responsible for the mess that was made. Did you notice in verse 1, it says, he brought into contempt. In other words, he brought them into responsibility for their sin. He called them to account. And friends, the words matter right here. Sin wasn't just a thing on their to-do list that needed taken care of. They were in it, in contempt. They were surrounded by it. It colored their entire reality. This was what was producing anguish in their hearts. And in the old covenant, the promised relationship between God and his people, that's what the the covenant is. The heart of this promise was a land. It was a place you know this, if you've got, when you move into an apartment, right, you, you put up a candle, you put up your own curtains. Why? Because your space gives you a sense of identity, a sense of safety. It's a symbol of the provision of God when you have a roof over your head. And the people of God, Naphtali and Zebulun, they were being isolated from this place. Because of their sin, they had lost this land And when the Bible says that the land was in contempt, it is screaming to us our own reality. Under the responsibility of our own sin, everything it means to know and be known by God is out of our grasp. We can't reach up to him. 
We can't climb above the line and heal what's been broken. It's life past our pay grade. And friends, this is the essence of eternal anguish. It's like someone standing on your oxygen tube when you're a mile under the ocean. It is a life or death situation. This kind of anguish overwhelms us. It's a complete sense of helplessness. Verse 2, did you notice it calls it deep darkness? But what does Jesus do with the anguish of his people? Out of an unexpected place like Galilee that is mentioned right there. During an impossible time under Roman occupation, Jesus shows up. And the true fashion of our Lord, look what he does. He doesn't merely stop anguish and leave us to sort through the pieces ourselves. Friends, he fills the scars of our anguish with glory. Did you see that? He has made glorious the way of the sea. That phrase, he has made glorious the way of the sea, isn't just geography. It's relational. The place so destroyed by sin that it would have been considered a complete lost cause right there. The risen Christ steps in and shines light and healing. Friends, most of the time we reject the healing work of God with us and settle for numbing the deep sense that things are dangerously out of whack. How do we do it? It gets pretty obvious this time of year, right? We work on our Amazon list. Not morally bad, but right, when you're three hours deep and it's 1 a.m. and you're still looking for this random thing that's just gonna finally fix you. We construct a future life in our minds and distract ourselves by pursuing it. Like, man, if I just get to this place, if I just do this thing, I'll finally be filled We refuse to lean toward Jesus in our doubts, our fears, and our questions, and we begin to lean away. And when we do that, our wounds never heal. Our sins never die. We stay stuck. We stay, as the text says, in them. Can I tell you about my friend Jesus this morning, New City? At the height of your and my disinterest, at the peak of our rebellion, at the darkest point of reality, the Son of God is born of a virgin in a less than ideal circumstance to heal your heart and life. He comes with a light that no thing of this world could generate. He shines it with compassion and determination into your reality. And he fills it with a glory, a deep sense of man. no one but God could have put these pieces back together. Here's the question for us in the middle of our anguish this morning. Will we stop numbing our anguish long enough that the healing touch of Jesus can break through? 
Friend, what sin in you is keeping you in the dark that you need to let, the, let Jesus light up? What wound caused by the sin around you needs the healing touch of Jesus to fill it with glory? Are you aware of that thing right now? Give it to him. God with us heals our anguish, but that's not all it does. Here's point number two. God with us increases joy. Increases joy. Um, a couple of weeks ago, one of our favorite artists, Ben Rector, released a Christmas album. Anybody heard that? It's good. You should. That's a shameless plug, I guess. Yeah, go listen to that Christmas album. But the opening track is called The Thanksgiving Song. And here's the thing about my son Bennett and The Thanksgiving Song. He can listen to the song on repeat from the moment he wakes up until the moment he goes to sleep and then a little bit extra. It's it's unbelievable to me, right? It's a good song, hear me, but when we get into playing it, it, it ruined my Spotify rap to this year because it was like, hey, you played the Thanksgiving song 4,700 times. You must really like this song. I'm like, no, that was my kid. He needs his own, get your own Spotify account, man. He wants to hear it over and over and over. But for me, even though the song is incredible, it gets less and less and less enjoyable every time I hear it. Life is marked by the law of diminishing returns. But the re-enchanted world of our king is marked by the opposite. Look at verse 3. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What used to be an exclusive club, a single nation of people, is now, in Jesus Christ, the most inclusive exclusive club there is. In other words, anyone who comes to the end of dealing with their own anguish, anyone who admits their complete need, can share in the joy of Jesus. Why? Because God has multiplied the nation you notice that it didn't say we multiplied the nation. It said you, God, have multiplied the nation. He has made room for all who will come. And maybe this morning you're wrestling through and you're going, man, what, what would it be like if I came? How can I be sure that Jesus is offering anything different than what I have going on myself? He, right here in this verse, gives us a glimpse of life under his care. You have increased its joy. You see, God has elevated not only the amount of joy his people are given, he re-enchants their ability to receive that joy. You know this. You get the things that you want, and what happens? They're just okay. The thing you saved for, the thing you planned for, the thing that you saved up all of your AR points for. You get it, and it's just okay. But Jesus is forever increasing the capacity of his people to receive his great joy. And he gives us examples of that joy. Did you catch that in the text? He says, like harvest, 
right? With the joy at harvest. What is harvest? It is, it's a sense of safety, right? When the crops come in, we know we're going to make it for another winter. It's security. It's evidence of the care and commitment of God. It says this one might be missed on us sometimes as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Prophet Kenny Rogers explains this to us, right? You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There will be time enough for counting when? When the deal is done, right? This moment right here is the, af the party after the battle is done. It is a sense of the complete finishing of the work. It's now we get to enjoy the spoils of war. Victory is ours. That's the kind of joy that the kingdom of God is ushering into the world. Why does this matter? Because life in a fallen world is inarguably hard. Whether you are a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist or a humanist or any other ist, the same world will weigh down on you. Will my life be hard is not the question at hand, New City. The question at hand is, will I have a genuine source of unending joy outside of myself, nourishing my soul while my life is hard? That's the question. This kind of joy hits the Christian on, on two levels. First, we take the coming of Jesus into this world as the guarantee that he will come again. That he's going to make everything right. We have a sense of hope that brings us joy. And second, we experience a supernatural infusing of surprising joy. If you know the Lord, I mean, haven't, haven't you experienced this? Moments that you shouldn't have had joy in your heart, that it just showed up? That it just came into focus when loss hits? There's something in you that goes, hey, I have confidence that the story isn't over, that the Lord is going to get the last word in this. When shame lingers, all of a sudden, I am, I am no longer defined by my past, by my past, but rather by Jesus's good future. When sorrow clouds in, I feel the weightiness of God's love there with me. You see, the increase of joy in the kingdom, it does not mean your life will be easy, but Jesus is coming into this world, guarantees that the joy curve will be forever trending up for the Christian. He's with us in that. Point number three. God with us administrates lasting peace. There are a few moments in your life where things get really vivid, right? You do that, something significant happens and you remember what you're wearing you remember smells in the room and tastes. One of those moments for me is September 11th, 2001. You remember where you were? You remember what you were wearing? This is going to disappoint some of you, and some of you are going to be like, man, you're so old. I was in the second grade when that happened, okay? I just saw a few people, like, hang their heads in shame. I'm sorry. It just is what it is. 
I remember I was wearing camouflage pants. And I remember sitting on the jungle gym when a teacher ran out and started gathering everybody back into the building to find out what had happened. And I remember even in my little second grade heart, there was something in me that went, things are never going to be the same again. We're about to go to war. What, what's going to happen? What does that mean? Is my dad going to have to go fight? What, what's going on? There is a longing in our hearts for peace, a longing to see things made right. Verse 4 tells us, for, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Think about the people that this was originally written to for a moment with me. They had experienced 400 years of captivity in Egypt. They were likely, at the moments they're reading this for the first time, in exile from their homeland, meaning they were taken and driven out to another place by armies. They were consistently mistreated, bullied, and pushed around by the great powers of the ancient world. Now imagine that being your story for a moment with me. Imagine that being your story. And when God shows up and speaks a word like this, that finally the strength of your oppressor is going to be broken and that you're finally going to be free, can you imagine what that puts in your heart? Can you imagine the weight that you would finally begin to see the wounds of shackles around your wrists and ankles disappear. That you might finally experience a real and lasting peace. You see, most of us have not in our lives experienced this kind of exile or this kind of enslavement. I think our black brothers and sisters have a unique perspective on this because they experience literal physical slavery. And so they can relate to this story of, of the people of God here. All of us, regardless of our story, we can relate to the longing for peace. Wartime inevitably puts everyone on edge, and rightfully so, right? We're trying to figure out how do we survive? How do we get through this? But you know what peacetime generates? It's one of the most profound scenes of Band of Brothers to me, the, the HBO series. At the end, during peacetime, they're in Sweden, and this general that you've seen going after it the whole time, he just takes a swim. And for some reason, that just wakes something up in my heart. Peacetime generates rest. It generates friendship, joy, purpose, beauty. All of these things that matter, but typically fly to the wayside when we are in survival mode. Friend, don't miss this. God with us, Jesus coming into this world, is bringing a peace so thorough and so secure the verse five tells us, hey, there's not even going to be a need for the tools of war. You know, boots and all your war garments. Yeah, just go ahead and burn them. Why? Because the battle is finished. 
If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you are at peace time. We get to fully and rightly reject the culture of the world, the one of anxiety and fear, and we get to stand confidently behind the not guilty verdict of Jesus on our behalf. You see, friends, the vast majority of people have no idea that true peacetime is actually possible. This is why God is calling us to make disciples in Champaign-Urbana and far beyond. We come with a promised peace offering of Jesus. Make no mistake, he will come again as judge and as king. But right now, he is patient in his anger and wait so that many might come to know the saving power of his gospel. We get to go out as heralds of a peace offering from God. Who doesn't need peace right now? Point number four, and I'm almost done. God with us makes God visible. Makes him visible. Look at verse six. It says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love that. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Friends, God did not choose to re-enchant this world as a force or as a mere idea, but through a human baby. Will you let that sink in on you for a moment? Jesus, the eternal son who had forever been in lockstep with his father, stepped out of heaven and became a person. The same one who dreamed up the human body would put one on himself. This, the one who is holding the world together on his shoulders through the government, the administration of the universe resting on his shoulders, willingly subjected himself to being held and nursed by his mother. The one who thought up maleness and femaleness would let his voice crack its way through puberty. And this God-man would show us what the rule and reign of God being restored in this world would look like. And you know how he does it? With his name. Did you catch his name right there? Wonderful Counselor. A wonderful counselor understands life in its truest sense. And he is so wonderful that he doesn't sell his secrets on an online masterclass or an audiobook. You know what he does? He gives us himself. Mighty God, 
Wherever he is, the might, the power, and the authority of God exists. And guess what he did? He put that stamp of authority on his people. That's why, friends, we are so passionate about planting a healthy gospel-saturated church because wherever that exists, you know what happens? Darkness gets pushed back by the authority of Jesus' kingdom breaking into this world. Everlasting father? Oh, is father not a loaded term in this room? For some of us, we have such broken relationships with our fathers. For others of us, we, we get this sense of warmth and overwhelming joy when we think of our fathers. You have an everlasting father in God. If you are his, guess what? He is yours forever. And not just as a ruler or as a sovereign or as a king. Don't, don't miss me. He is all of those things, but he is all of those things as father. That is fundamental to his nature. A father who loves, who protects, who disciplines, who shapes, who initiates you into the calling he has on your life. You have a better father. And finally, Prince of Peace. You know what a prince does? He rules. He makes peace rule in the hearts of his people. Can you hear your ruler Jesus today saying, peace, peace to you? That's what his re-enchanted world looks like. Many of us right now, we struggle to see God in all of this mess that has been 2020. The end of the year inevitably kind of forces us to begin to reflect and think. Friend, can I tell you, as you're reflecting and thinking back on a dumpster fire of a year, will you look at Jesus with me? Your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting father, your prince of peace is reshaping the world into exactly what it was meant to be. Patiently, kindly, but with strength and determination. He will finish what he has started. And he's doing it through a baby king. A king who grew up and took the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders and who conquered death forever. Friends, this is the true wonder of Christmas. This is our king who's re-enchanting the world and who today, if you, if you don't know him, who can re-enchant you? Man, I'm praying that sinks into our souls as a church family this Christmas season, New City. Let's pray. It's, it's too wonderful a thing. It's the thing that's too good to be true that's true. And Lord, we receive it with faith this morning. Some of us are struggling in our very present and real anguish. Some of us are in desperate need of peace as we're feeling the anxiety of what's going to happen in this world. Some of us need to see God visibly where he is. 
And so Jesus, through Christmas this season, will you make yourself known to us? Will you show us the million ways you are currently re-enchanting this world to give us hope and trust that you, you are, as Philippians 1.6 says, you are going to finish what you have started. You will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus what you have began in us. We pray all these things in Jesus. Amen. I love you, New City.